0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy.
1: Listener supported. WNYC Studios.
2: This is On the Media's Midweek Podcast. I'm Brooke Gladstone. This week, the Senate held confirmation hearings for Ketanji Brown Jackson's nomination to the Supreme Court. Her ascension to the highest court in the land is all but guaranteed, with the Democrats holding a slim majority in the Senate. And once she gets there, her rulings, her dissenting opinions, her silences, her words will all become fodder for the media who cover the court. Given that, we thought it would be a good moment to review our Breaking News Consumers Handbook, SCOTUS Edition. The pitfalls of covering the court, though few, are deep and hazardous. Because the court basically does one of two things. It either decides to hear a case and issue a big decision – that happens over 80 times a year – or it decides not to hear a case. That happens upwards of 7,000 times a year. And simple as that may seem, news organizations often confuse the two.
0: Frequently, you'll hear something along the lines of the Supreme Court affirmed or the Supreme Court upheld, when in fact it did nothing of the sort. That's Amy Howe of Blog, the gold standard source for breaking court news. It just left the lower court decision in place, and it doesn't have effect nationwide. Right. Other appeals courts can take it up. Exactly. The decision usually comes from a federal appeals court, and so it will be good law in that region of the country, but it doesn't have any effect in other parts of the country unless and until those lower courts weigh in. New
2: York Times court reporter Adam Liptock says that in some cases, letting a decision stand can be very meaningful.
1: As in, when the court lets stand a bunch of rulings allowing same-sex marriage to expand across the country... But there are many routine cases where it's not clear to me that you need to send out a news alert.
2: Often a headline will suggest that the court decided on the constitutionality of an issue, when in fact it didn't. Usually the court weighs in when lower courts disagree over the interpretation of a federal law, not its constitutionality.
1: And the difference is important. When the court decides a constitutional case, it's game over. The court has the last word on the meaning of the constitution. When the court decides a statutory case saying this is what we think Congress meant, Congress is free to come back and say, no, wrong. What we actually meant was something else. So the two kinds of cases are very different, and the distinction matters.
2: So consider skipping newspaper headlines or, on TV or radio, intros. They're
3: often written or changed by people who don't quite
2: get it. NPR's legal affairs correspondent, Nina Totenberg.
3: It's usually something fairly subtle that you've struggled with and struggled with to try to get it right, but at the same time understandable, and you may have fallen 10% short and the anchor or the editor or the headline writer decides, oh, I can fix that. Uh Uh-huh.
1: We're mostly talking about, shall we say, editors uh, (laughs) who who are not at the court and don't follow its daily diet, but see something cross the wires and overemphasize its importance.
2: Far from offering a shortcut, headlines may in fact send you in the wrong direction. And they're just the first distraction. Facts are another. Yep, facts, characters, the whole narrative behind the lawsuit. Fun facts are to court reporters what squirrels are. To dogs, Because so many cases
4: are really boring. Slate's Dahlia Lithwick. We'll get very, very excited if we have a factual scenario that looks really weird or interesting. The school was looking for a drug ring that was full of ibuprofen instead of, there's this incredibly
2: important search question under the Constitution. Both Lithwick and Liptak cite one particular case decided in 2009, Ashcroft v. Iqbal.
1: About whether Attorney General Ashcroft could be sued by people who'd been rounded up after 9-11 and held in harsh conditions in immigration detention facilities. And the facts of that case are very compelling. I basically wrote a story all about how the detainees lost.
2: But beware stories that focus mainly on winners or losers because high court rulings mean so much more. In this case, it ruled that top government officials could not be sued for the unlawful discriminatory actions of underlings unless the presiding judge believes that the plaintiff can prove the boss was behind it. Cited in over 85,000 lower court decisions since the ruling, dismissals have soared. Really, it
4: was a year out before we read the opinion and said, holy cow, this was a sea change.
2: Uh, We were just so interested in Mr. Iqbal's life. But to be fair, often the impact of a decision is not really known for years until it has time to play out in countless courts across the country. That's why the Supreme Court will sometimes revisit its own decisions. Even the justices may be unaware of the full implications of what they've done. The next big danger zone in high court coverage involves oral arguments, namely giving them too much significance.
0: The reading Justice Roberts' line of questioning yesterday, I don't think so. I think that the government will lose.
2: Or too little significance. You just can't read how
1: the justices are going to vote based on oral arguments, because a lot of times they will ask their own side
2: the toughest questions. Oral arguments are essentially theater, but they're also crucial, though not for the reason you think. Occasionally, an attorney can lose a case by botching an oral argument, but mostly the justices already have made up their minds based on the briefs. What they don't know is where their fellow justices stand. Dahlia Lithwick.
4: This is their first chance to suss out, huh, do I have five votes, do I have four, do I have four and a third? And then trying to figure out, huh... Kennedy's in play. What could I do to make him be more in play? Sometimes the advocates are in a very strange situation where they can tell that they're just a potted plant and that the justices are, in fact, talking over their heads. But I also think when you have a court that is as polarized as this court is, it's very, very interesting to see someone like Justice Kennedy, who always tries to come in looking as though uh, I'm I'm struggling with something. Help me out here. It gives the other justices a chance to say, here, let let me frame it this way for you and
0: try to bring you along. Particularly Justice Elena Kagan is one that's interesting to watch.
2: Here's where things get fascinatingly arcane. SCOTUS blog's Amy Howe explains
0: that after the oral arguments... When the justices actually meet to vote on a case, they go around the room in order of seniority. They start with the chief justice, then they move on to Justice Scalia, Justice Kennedy, Justice Thomas, and so on. And Justice Kagan is the last one to vote, Frequently, by the time it gets to her, the case has already been decided. And so (laughs) she will often be using the oral argument as a way to figure out what the other justices' concerns are and try to get the lawyers to address those because she knows that she may not have a chance to make these arguments in the justices' private conference until it's too late. One more thing to consider. How much consideration to give to
2: the president who appointed a particular justice?
1: Justice Scalia, who was appointed by President Reagan. Justice Ginsburg, who was appointed by President Clinton in 1993. Justice Stephen Breyer, appointed by President Clinton. Justice
4: appointed by President George W. Bush. Chief Justice John Roberts. I think the justices would be the first to say that they absolutely hate the reporter shorthand of saying appointed by George W. Bush, appointed by Clinton, because it says too much. the justices say, you know, when we put on our robes, we stop being our ideology. And of course, we know that's not entirely true.
2: But do you think there are more litmus tests now for Supreme Court judges than there used to be? Oh, absolutely. The confirmation process is vastly more politicized,
4: right? These confirmations used to happen in a couple of hours on paper. It wasn't until really the last century that the nominee even bothered showing up for their own confirmation. But I think it's also important to point out that the court has become unbelievably politicized and that we have a right wing of the court that is quite a bit farther to the right than any court we've seen since the FDR court. The whole system, I think, has done what the rest of the country has done, which is absolutely ideologically run to the two poles with very, very little sort of in that center. So when a term ends the way it did last year with the death penalty and gay marriage and Obamacare, and they're all fractious and shouting at each other and very, very uh, polarized and also close votes,
2: that's what the American public sees. And yet they care enormously that their prestige be maintained and they fear losing the public trust.
4: Well, that's why we have the black robes. That's why we have a court that's built to look like a Greek temple. I mean, the whole theater of what they're doing is to say, as John Roberts so famously said, we're just umpires. This is just balls and strikes. This is not politics. This is something transcendent and almost oracular. And that's the message they have to give out. And it's important, I think, to understand that some of the time that's true. (laughs) Uh, But a lot of the time, it's not true. And one of the things that's Really difficult, both for reporters covering the court and for the public that's trying to consume news of the court, is holding these two ideas in your head at the same time. That this is an incredibly political institution that's doing something, sometimes effectively and sometimes not, that tries to transcend
2: politics. The final point in this SCOTUS edition of our Breaking News Consumer Handbook should actually be the parting shot in all of our handbooks.
3: Really, to rely on certain news sources that you have found to be reliable. And writers who you find readable and reliable. Nina Totenberg. You can look at Adam Liptak at The New York Times, at Dahlia. Dahlia doesn't pretend to be unbiased. You know, she writes a column. The most entertaining writing under the sun and i've never seen a mistake in it a mistake of law a mistake of fact or scotus blog which has developed a system which is so reliable right on deadline that we use it there's bob barnes at the washington post david savage at the los angeles times you know you just have to develop people who have not let you down
2: The fact is, like business reporting or science and health reporting, court reporting is complex and sometimes esoteric, requiring high degrees of expertise. Of course, some famous bloopers occur because reporters in a hurry just didn't read far enough into the decision. Breaking news here on the Fox News Channel.
4: Uh, Good morning. We have just gotten the opinion. I'm just getting a first look at it. It is authored by the Chief Justice John Roberts. He says the individual mandate cannot be sustained under Congress's power to regulate
0: commerce. That means the mandate is gone.
1: Megan, you're seeing something now. We're
3: getting conflicting
0: information. Uh, If you follow SCOTUSblog.com, they say that despite what Shannon just read, that the individual mandate is surviving as a tax. This is according to SCOTUSblog, which also has the opinion.
2: That's memorably embarrassing. CNN, by the way, was far worse. But it's rare. Mostly reporters make mistakes because they think they understand what's going on when they don't. So when seeking Supreme Court news, choose a wonk. Monk's rule. Of course, a lot of the interpretation reporters have to do would be moot if there were cameras in the courtroom. But the justices have historically been pretty divided on that issue. Former OTM producer Jesse Brenneman paid special tribute to that debate in
3: song.
1: Television in court. I was for it when I first joined the court and switched and remained on that side of it. I do not believe the purpose would be to educate the American people. It will alter the way in which we hear our cases, the way in which we talk to counsel, the way in which we use that precious power. Please don't introduce into the dynamic the temptation the insidious temptation to think that one of my colleagues is trying to get a soundbite bite to the television we don't want that please senator we, we don't want that please don't introduce the temptation the insidious temptation television in the court the way in which we use that precious precious hour television in the court we'll have to talk together we don't want that television in the court. Board.
0: I think it would be a terrific thing.
1: Please don't introduce the insidious temptation. Try, try, try to get a soundbite for the television. Could you argue the opposite position? I could make a lot of points about educating the public. If the American people watched our proceeding gavel to gavel, they would never again ask... Judge Lee, why do you
2: have to be a lawyer to be on the Supreme Court? When you see what happens, it's an inspiring sight. All nine justices, so prepared, so smart, so thorough, really seeing government at
1: work. If a million people could have seen that oral argument, that would be wonderful.
2: I have had positive experiences with cameras. It
1: seems somewhat perverse to exclude the television. I don't
2: see any problem with having proceedings televised. So it sounds like you all changed your minds
1: today you see a camera coming into our courtroom it's going to roll over my dead body regular appearances on tv would mean significant changes in the way my colleagues could conduct their lives my anonymity is already gone Most of the American people would see 15-second takeouts, and those takeouts would not be characteristic of what we do. They would be uncharacteristic. Yeah, now what we see is an article in a newspaper that's out of context. That's fine. People read that, and they say, well, it's an article in a newspaper. But somehow, when you see it live, see it live, an excerpt live, it has a much greater impact. Television in the court. Over my dead body.
2: Good for the public.
1: Television in the court. That would be wonderful. We don't want that. Television in the court. My anonymity's already gone.
0: It means I'd have to get my hair done more often, Senator Spector. Oh. Oh. <laughs> Let me commend
1: you on that last comment.
2: Thanks for listening to our midweek podcast. If you want a handout of the breaking news consumers handbook or any of our breaking news consumer handbooks, go to our website at onthemedia.org. And while you're there, sign up for our newsletter. It's pure gold. See you later in the week for the big show. I'm Brooke Gladstone.